We'll continue standing in worship as we come to the reading of our God's Word from Esther chapter 2, verses 1 to 18. Esther 2, 1 to 18. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa the citadel, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women." Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young woman, women were gathered in Susa the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther was also taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now, when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil and of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shaashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the, king of the, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. And he also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. That's God's word for his people. You may be seated. And let's turn now and see our God's glory in his word once again. And so, Father, we pray now and ask for your help 
and understanding your word and seeing its truths, namely, who it points to, the king who will reign in righteousness one day, the king who had to come to us because we could not answer our greatest problems ourselves. And so we long now for you to give us eyes to see the glory of King Jesus so that we might see his love for us and all that he is and does. In your name we pray. Amen. So recently our country set aside a day for Thanksgiving. And for many of our neighbors, this has just become paid time off, an excuse for a lavish meal and a day of football, family, friends, and Black Friday shopping. But it's called Thanksgiving because it was a day first set aside by the settlers to thank God, to remember his gracious providence and provision, and to give him in our remembrance and of all he's done, thanks and praise and all the glory. It may not have been Thanksgiving, but chapter 2 also opens with King Ahasuerus remembering the events of chapter 1. Now, just one brief note, uh, I don't know how to say a Hazarus, right? And you probably have already noticed, I'm probably saying it different than you've heard. Technically, it's a Hashwarosh, and you try saying that a bunch of times for the next two months and not sound like you're just slurring your words. So I just made it super simple. I tried, I practiced, I looked at myself in the mirror, could not say it right. So it's a Hazarus because I have to say it a bunch of times. But it's a Hashwarosh, or if you really want to get technical. But just know I can't say it right. So, um, and maybe it's a Hazareris, but even that is just, that doesn't roll off the tongue. So you're just going to have to roll with me. A Hazareris is remembering um, this grand week-long city feast that was followed, or that followed the, the, the lavish 186-month feast, um, which then he remembers that it all came to a screeching halt when his heart being merry with wine Uh, he commanded Vashti to come parade in full view of the city's drunk men so they could lust after her and wish they were him. And then Vashti refused. And in a raging fury, Ahasuerus banished Vashti from his presence forever. (laughs) And after these things, chapter 2 begins. Now chapter 1 takes place in the third year of his reign. The feast, which we'll get to at the end of our section, is in the seventh year of his reign. So some people think this is the seventh year. Uh, I I technically uh, tend to think that this is just sometime in between year 3 and 4. It it must have at least been 12 months, because it takes 12 months for a young virgin to get to the king after the process. Um, So, But I think it's probably sometime in there between years 3 and 4. It could be towards the beginning. It could be at the very end. The Bible doesn't really tell. It just says, after these things, Ahasuerus is sitting in his palace remembering. And he remembers his decree against Vashti. Not just about her, but against her. But now, with the flames of his fury extinguished, he feels the weight of the consequences. Not of loneliness. He has a harem and concubines. But he feels the weight of his consequences of his impulsive foolishness that has left him as a great king without a queen. And so we're going to frame our time this morning in verses 1 to 18 with two main questions as a as a as a Hazarus, oh, I can't even do it now. 
as that dude tries to remember, okay? He's, he's there remembering, and we're going to frame our time as he's going to deal with now what he's done in his impulsive foolishness through the use of two questions. The first, what kind of world do we live in? What kind of world do we live in? And two, how are God's people to live in this world? What kind of world do we live in? And how are God's people to live in this world? So first, what kind of world do we live in? Uh, We aren't told what Ahasuerus said or thought, but there must have been some element of regret about his banishing his queen. And so his advisors or his um, attendants see this and they say, let's come up with a plan to change his mood, to to cheer him up a little bit. And so they do in verse 2. The king's young men who attended him say, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given to them and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. And this pleased the king, and he did so. Shocking, right? Um, of course, this plan pleased this king. He didn't have to admit any wrongdoing. He didn't have to be held accountable for anything he said or did. And he was going to have a lot of beautiful women spend the night with him. And so now, uh, we just need to remember first, decrees of the Medes and Persians were irrevocable. They couldn't be undone. He banished her. That was it. Uh, But rather than admitting it or coming up with a way to work around it, which we've seen elsewhere in the scriptures when the Medes and Persians have laws like this, uh, he doesn't do so. He gets this plan uh, to have a lot of beautiful young ladies um, be moved into his palace. And so this reveals the kind of world we live in. Even though those laws were undone, um, we still see that our world believes the answers to our problems lie within us and not outside of us. This providential moment of reflection doesn't lead Ahasuerus or his empire out of the folly that got them into this predicament in the first place. Their, Their folly just serves to compound it. And one of the dangers, uh, which I mentioned last week, of preaching Old Testament narrative uh, is moralizing the Bible's message. There's a danger in the Old Testament to moralize it. And the guardrail to that danger is to let God's word guide us. When God's word doesn't guide us, we, we will see things that aren't in the text, leading to assertions that the Bible doesn't make, And so we'll end up moralizing the Bible's message rather than staying faithful to it. So what I'm not saying is that the Bible doesn't deal elsewhere or at all with objectifying human beings or using power to serve ourselves at the expense of others rather than using our power to serve others in love. We just saw Galatians 5 talk about what we are to do with our power, how we're to serve in love. But, I'm not, but, but that's not the point of Esther. I'm not saying the Bible never deals with this. I'm saying that these issues aren't the point of Esther, not the main point. The point of the opulent feast and Vashti's refusal isn't be like Vashti or don't be like Ahasuerus. The point is 
what the world calls the good life isn't really that good at all. The point is we need a better king who will actually reign in righteousness and establish a better kingdom. The point is that God uses human folly to display his divine wisdom. The point is God is always working to accomplish his purposes even when we can't see his hand at work. Maybe especially when we can't see his hand at work. And even in spite of our sin. Our sin won't stop God from accomplishing his purposes. The point of Esther is that what we need won't be found within us or within our world. It must come to us. And yet, the world, in the beginning of chapter 2, continues to double down on its own wisdom and strength to get itself out of the mess it's created. Isn't that what we see at the beginning of chapter 2? This moment of reflection still leads Ahasuerus to refuse to look outside of himself, and he doubles down on human wisdom and strength. And we see the secular way of doing that. The secular way of doing this is to make plans to get out of the mess. This is the problem. We, we can figure our way out of it. That's what the king's advisors do, and the plan pleased the king. But you know, there's also a religious way. There's a religious way of doubling down on our own strength. And it's actually fueled by moralizing sermons that say, don't be foolish like Ahasuerus. Be faithful. That was one of my one rules when I was the youth pastor here and elsewhere. Don't be an idiot. Right? It, it, it was taken from a TV show. Just ask yourself, would an idiot do that? If an idiot would do that, don't do it. All right? It's helpful. Like, don't be foolish. Be faithful. The problem with that is we can't actually do what needs doing. We can't actually not be foolish. We can't actually be faithful. Not in the way the scriptures call us to. And that's why moralizing sermons aren't just wrong. They're damning and dangerous. Because it's just the religious way of looking inward rather than to God. You just need to try harder. You just need to choose better. You just need to not be merry with wine. You just need to stick to your morals and your guts. You just need to not fail. But we can't actually do what needs doing. And so verses 1 to 4 drive home the point that what the world we live in needs won't be found within it. But the Bible also shows us that that doesn't mean we're without hope. Friends, the answer to human folly is never be faithful. The answer is turn to the one who is always faithful. So when you're confronted with your foolishness, don't double down on human wisdom and strength and say, I've just got to try harder next time. I'll, just, I'll do better next time. That's not actually the path out of foolishness. It's only the, a path further into it. The path out doesn't begin by looking within, but by looking to the better king who is always righteous and faithful, Jesus Christ. And as we look to Jesus, we actually get what we want. As we look to Jesus, the Holy Spirit conforms us into the image of Jesus, the faithful one. 
The way out of human folly is not to try harder. It's looking to Jesus and the grace of the Holy Spirit as we look to Jesus makes us like the faithful one. He conforms us into the image of faithfulness. And so we see the world we live in is foolish as it looks for the answers within. But not only do we live in a foolish world, secondly, we live in a heartless world. We live in a heartless world. Who suffers the consequences of the king's wrathful folly in chapter 1 that left him without a queen? Most likely thousands of young women who are then taken from their families and brought to the king's harem for what is bluntly a sex competition. It's not a beauty competition. All the regiments and everything leading up to it and their looks and their figures, however those are defined by their culture in those days, which might not be the same way we define them in Western world, all of that is culminated in one night with the king. After undergoing that year-long regiment and then having that night with the king, what does the text tell us? They're transferred from the virgin harem to the concubine harem. This is not just a beauty pageant. It's a sex competition to please the king. And then if you don't please him enough, you're sent to this harem where you will live out the rest of your life in seclusion or at least in, in, in a room with other women who are unwanted by the king unless he calls you back by name. And then even if he does call you back a second time, You still go back to it, and it starts all over again, unless he calls you again. It really is quite appalling. And it's not actually just young girls who are abused and exploited in the Persian culture. Young boys are, too. We don't notice it much, but history notes um, that the Persians castrated 500 boys a year to make them eunuchs to serve in the palaces of Persia. So while we are probably prone, and rightfully so, to see the young women who are exploited, um, we have read the word eunuch already lots of times, and maybe aren't so prone to see that they too were taken from their homes and their lives changed forever just to serve the Persian king's sexual desires. And in our heartless world, what we see is the weak are often objects to be used and disposed of by the strong whenever they please. And frankly, my children are right now at the age where if we were alive in this time in the world, this heartlessness would probably have shattered my family and probably many of yours as well. And so the tough thing in a moment like that is to stay faithful to the text. The the tough thing is to stay faithful because what we want is what Esther actually doesn't do. Esther does not pronounce moral judgments here or anywhere, actually. It just gives us the details. Now, we can connect two and two. The Bible does make prophetic judgments elsewhere. But we must stay faithful to the narrative to see what the narrative's main point is. 
And I think too often we want to get distracted by the things that aren't there because we don't like what actually is here. There's no prophetic word. There's just silence as the world's strong exploit and abuse the weak. And this is one of the problems with taking little chunks of Scripture instead of preaching the whole story on a, on a Sunday because we actually can't see it yet because we're still in the introduction of Esther. But what we see now and what we're getting ready to see and what we'll continue to see throughout this chapter and throughout the story of Esther is that there's a greater power who actually is king over all and righteous and is working to ensure the salvation and of his people and the accomplishing of his good purposes no matter what his people face. But there's this invisible hand at work even now. Even the things that people mean for their harm, God will subvert and use for his glory. God subverts the world's foolishness and heartlessness so they ultimately serve his glory and his people's good. And that's really easy to say because many of you have probably memorized Romans 8, 28, that God uses all things, bad and good, for the good of those who love him. The problem is, right now, we live in the in-between moments between that good happening and the heartless, foolish world that we live in. We might know Romans 8, 28 by heart, but we live in between the all things of this foolish, heartless world and the ultimate good God is working out. So how are we supposed to live in that tension? Well, that leads to our second question. How are God's people to live in this foolish, heartless world? Well, verse 5 finally connects this book to the biblical narrative as we're introduced to two of Esther's main characters, Mordecai and Esther. Now we're told they're Jews living in Susa uh, under the foolish, heartless power of this world's kingdom. And in light of the recent horrific terrorist attack on Israel in October, uh, and then the exponential growth of anti-Semitism in our country and around the world, uh, I must note that the word Jew in Esther isn't an ethnic term, uh, it's not necessarily anti-Semitic. In, in, actually, in the beginning here of Esther, there's no hint of anti-Semitism in Persia. In fact, the previous kings, Ahasuerus' dad and grandfather, uh, seemed to be more open to religious freedom, and Cyrus actually let them go back to their, their home and rebuild uh, Jerusalem and the walls. And so there's not any anti-Semitism yet in Esther. Uh, and so this term here is not primarily ethnic, it's religious. It's religious. Uh, it's the, a term referring to the old covenant people of God. And so what I'll refer to them, uh, this, this uh, term throughout the series in Esther, I'll probably say God's people uh, to help us understand rather than Jew, which is mainly a, an ethnic term in, in our day. Um, but what the main point is, it's called Mordecai. It says Mordecai the Jew is living in Susa, not Jerusalem. That's the point. Many people returned uh, to Jerusalem. Many of God's people returned to Jerusalem in 538 BC, but not Mordecai. And since he adopted his cousin Esther, neither did she. We're not told why 
and there's not even actually a judgment against them not being in Jerusalem. It's, it's just there because it's, it's kind of striking that there are Jews not living where we expect them to be. They're not where they, sh- they should be. They're not where we think they'd long to be. And not only that, how they're living reveals Mordecai and Esther aren't really the faithful examples we'd like to think they are. And I'm sorry if I just ruined your Veggie Tales view of Esther. Mordecai and Esther aren't really the faithful examples we'd like to think they are. Uh, Mordecai is a Persian official. Uh, He has to be because he's inside the citadel, not Susa proper. And he's often at the city gates where the power players would would sit and rule from and and talk about and do their business. Um, And he could get close enough to the king's harem that he was near Esther's residence in the coming chapters. Mordecai, in other words, is employed by the evil empire. Now, that in itself doesn't mean Mordecai is unfaithful. That's just a puzzle, a piece of the puzzle that you need to remember. What we do know is that Mordecai is a Persian official who raised his cousin to conceal her identity as one of God's people. He, I think he even changed her name. We're not told Mordecai's Jewish name, but we're told Esther's Jewish name, who then was referred to as Esther, and it will be referred to as Esther throughout the rest of the book, never Hadassah again. And so let's consider those names for a moment. Uh, Mordecai means worshiper of Marduk, the chief Persian god. And Esther is a variation of Ishtar, the chief Babylonian goddess of love and war. And again, we're not, there's no moral judgments upon them either here. We're, we're just told these things, these pieces of the puzzle And it begins to look like the puzzle is showing us that they have fully assimilated into Persian culture rather than striving to keep their unique identity as God's people among Persian culture. And it's not actually too surprising when we get more of the puzzle pieces in place. We're told of Mordecai's lineage. It says, son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite. Uh, Who was Shimei? He was King Saul's relative, and do you remember what he did? He stood on a hill opposite of King David, cursing him, God's anointed, and pelting him with rocks in 2 King 16. So bad was it that some of uh, King David's mighty men wanted to chop his head off. So this family history of opposition and unfaithfulness to God isn't an unimportant detail that we're given in Esther, especially considering who's named next in verse 6, Jeconiah, king of Judah. Now, in 2 Kings 24, we're told that his wicked reign only lasts three months before God finally has enough of his people's sin and uses Babylon to exile them. But what we see at the end of chapter or of 2 Kings, with his people in captivity, Jeconiah is released from captivity to eat at Nebuchadnezzar's royal table. Now, Jeconiah does not deserve a release from captivity. He was wicked, and the Bible doesn't tell us he repents. And in fact, eating at Nebuchadnezzar's table meant he kept breaking 
the Old Testament ceremonial and food laws. And yet he's shown this grace. Why does 2 Kings end this way? And why are we told it in Esther, the name of this king? We're told this name to remind us of how 2 Kings ends so that we remember where our hope is truly found. It's not in ourselves, but in the God who pours out abundant grace even upon his sinful people and wicked king. And he does so not because of obedience. They're actually in captivity because of disobedience. And Jeconiah is released not because he repented, but because God pours out abundant grace upon the undeserving. And why? Why does God pour out abundant grace upon the undeserving? Only because he is steadfastly committed to his people and his purposes. Because of his steadfast love and covenant promises. And he is steadfastly committed to his covenant promises and his covenant people, even when they're at their covenant-keeping worst. I'm not sure I can say anything more important than that to remember as we study Esther. That God is steadfastly committed to his covenant people and promises even when his people are at their covenant-keeping worst. We must remember that. Not try to see if Mordecai and Esther are really good examples we should emulate. I don't mean to burst your bubbles about Mordecai and Esther. Actually, I do. That was, that was not true. I do. If, if, if you think they're examples of faithfulness that God's people should emulate. They don't speak of God. That's why God's not mentioned. They don't talk about him. They don't pray. They don't pray. (laughs) There's no mention of observing the law. They don't long for Jerusalem or for a rebuilt temple or for freedom from Gentile domination like we see elsewhere in the parts of the Old Testament that are post-exile. And if that wasn't bad enough, the middle of chapter 2 gets worse. Mordecai lets Esther be taken. He doesn't protest. He protests in chapter 4 later on when there's some injustice, but not so when his cousin is taken into the king's harem. And not only that, Esther doesn't protest either. Now, I realize that is not politically correct to say in our culture, which would point to the situation where the power dynamic doesn't afford Mordecai, especially Esther, room to make any other decision. It's not her fault she's not in Jerusalem. It's Mordecai's. It's not her fault that the king abuses his power and takes thousands of young women to use however he wants. But God's word doesn't allow us to say that 
Esther has no fault of being unfaithful here. Because what did we see in chapter 1? The Gentile queen, in the same power dynamic, tells the king no. And lest you think, because she's queen, she's got some power, and you're not really understanding Ahasuerus and all that chapter 1 tells us about his worldwide powerful empire. She really has no power, which is how she gets banished. But she, the Gentile queen, says no. And we're told the Jews in chapter 2, God's people, do the opposite. They go along with it. Now that does not excuse a hazardous sin or the evil empires. But neither does it release Mordecai or Esther from the facts presented to us. Unless you think I'm being harsh with Esther for a moment, she might not have wanted to be in this competition. But from the facts presented to us, it gets even worse. And so if we read Esther through our modern Western eyes, we'll mistake this book as a critique of societal or social structures, structures or gender or power dynamics. It's not that. The point of all this is that the Gentile queen refused and defied the king while God's people don't. And then instead of, instead of doing even what Ahasuerus does at the beginning of chapter 2, turning and going back, they double down. And Esther breaks several old covenant laws, making things even more uncomfortable for us. She's a willing participant. One objection to that is verse 8 says Esther was taken to be in the competition, that she didn't sign up. It's true, she did not sign up. But the verb taken is the same verb used elsewhere, like in Ruth, when Boaz takes Ruth to be his wife. And Boaz definitely doesn't take Ruth by force. When women are forcibly taken in the Old Testament in a way that would relieve them of any guilt, uh, the verbs snatched or caught are used. And that is not used here. And when Esther arrives in the harem, she wins the favor of Haggai and everyone who saw her. She doesn't find their favor, which is the passive tense of the verb used when Daniel and Joseph, in similar situations, found favor from others. She gained it. And lest you think, well, those are two men, well, Joseph was in a power dynamic, which his refusal left him running through a house without his clothes and then ended up in jail for years and years and years. But he still found favor in those people's eyes. He didn't actively seek it, which is what we're told Esther does. She wins it. She actively sought it to win the competition. She doesn't protest the food in verse 9, nor does she protest the pinnacle of the competition, a night with the king in bed. In fact, she asks Haggai in verse 15 what she should bring with her into the king's bedroom for her night with him. Then she sleeps with him and does so well with the uncircumcised Gentile outside the covenant of marriage that she beats out all the other women for the king's favor, which he then crowns her king for doing and then marries her, even though God strictly forbids foreign marriages in the old covenant. All the while, concealing her identity as one of God's people, and never protesting like Vashti does. And she concealed her identity here, 
which verse 20, which we'll look at next week, says Mordecai had taught her how to do and she did for her entire life. So there, I've totally destroyed Esther's view in your world. Why? Because in the face of Esther 1 and 2, if we don't face the facts of the stark decline of faith and the immoral acts, then we won't see that God is so committed to keeping his covenant promises. He orchestrates events deeply mired in both exploitative abuse and power and immoral sinfulness to accomplish his saving purposes. A saving which people in Esther don't even know they need yet. All we know is one king's gone and another king has come. And we don't know why. We can just see God is orchestrating all these events to accomplish his saving purposes, and he does this even when his people are at their very sinful worst. He's not doing it because Mordecai and Esther are prime examples of faithfulness. He's doing it because they're unfaithful. Because he's so committed to himself and his glory and his steadfast covenant love and purposes. So even our very sinful worst will not thwart God's purposes and plan. All right, so that gets us to the details then of how then, let's answer that question, how does Mordecai and Esther's living in this foolish, heartless world answer our question how are God's people to live in this world? Well, first, though Mordecai and Esther aren't examples of faithfulness that many assume and that we'd like to believe, their unfaithfulness isn't an example either. We can't take the abounding steadfast love and mercy that God shows in light of human sin and conclude that we can then live however we want and presume upon God's grace. Now, Esther, too, is not here to give us grounds to justify our continuing in sin while pointing to God's free grace. Paul says in Romans 3, verse 8, that that's what people were saying about him, that his gospel led to him teaching uh, people that you can do evil because good will come of it. In Romans 3, 8, Paul says he's being slanderously accused of teaching the church. Just live in sin. Do evil so that good may come of it. So then later, a couple chapters later in Romans 6, he says this in verses 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can those who died to sin still live in it? We can't conclude from Esther 2, that our sinful actions must be part of God's plan in order to justify our rebellion against God's revealed will, because it allows God to abound in grace. Do you see what this means? God's free grace is supposed to convict and comfort us after the fact. It doesn't mean you can sit here and go, oh, well, Esther threw it all out the window. Mordecai threw it all out the window. And God still worked through it. Well, let's just 
eat, drink, and be merry, because God's going to abound in grace. It's on, it's on the back end, this is comforting news, this is not used on the front end to plan it. We can't justify our rebellion from God's revealed will and presume upon his abounding grace. If you've died to sin in Jesus, you cannot plan to live in it. And you will not presume upon God's amazing grace that he showed you in light of, your, uh, in light of what your sin deserved. So wherever God's sovereignty and free grace are preached and taught and loved and sung and used to encourage each other, there will always be people who say, well then, what I do doesn't really matter and God will use it for good. Because what does the Bible say? May it never be. Brothers and sisters, the, the Bible never confirms or comforts us in our sin. God's word confronts us in our sin so that when the Holy Spirit convicts us of the countless times we've sinned, we will find our confidence in Jesus and never in ourselves. It doesn't comfort, it doesn't confirm us in sin, it convicts us so that we find our confidence in Jesus and never in ourselves. And that's why we sing the song we often do on Sunday mornings, His mercy is more. What riches of kindness he lavished on us. His blood was the payment. He shed his blood to pay for that sin. His life was the cost. We stood neath a debt we could never afford. So then what? Because he's paid for it, let's just keep on sinning? No, it's this recognition yet that, yes, our sins, they are many. Oh, the glory of knowing his mercy is more, that he set us free. And so, friend, I, I wonder then what you think the Bible is. It, 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 if it's not an excuse to just keep living in sin, then what is it? I wonder, I wonder if you think the Bible is a book filled with great moral examples and ethical heroes, spiritual giants that are put here and written down so that we might see it and try to be like them. Or, if you see that the Bible is the revelation of God's amazing saving grace in the midst of humanity's deep evil and brokenness. Now, I don't know how you've come to find yourself with us today in our foolish, heartless world. But we want you to know that there's great hope in this hopeless world. That we can say, along with the scriptures, that yes, things really are this bad. And our sin and the power structures of this world often amplify it and make things worse. Things really are this bad, and we have no answers within us or within our world to make it right. But God's sovereign grace redeems even the most horrific and hopeless situations to display the glories of his saving grace. And that that saving grace can reach into even the most hopeless, dark, and horrific circumstances this world might present to us 
which we might participate in, which we might participate unwillingly in, which we might participate willingly in, which we find ourselves in the tension of the heartless, foolish world and the longing for the ultimate good that we know is coming. That our sin and this world's evil do go far deeper than we can ever imagine. But God's grace goes deeper still. So turn to Jesus and find that grace. And he knows. He knows. He came to us in this world. He was exploited and abused by the world's powerful empire. He was despised and rejected. He came to his own people, and his own people didn't know him. He was falsely accused and wrongly convicted and brutally executed in public shame. But God was at work behind this all to save a people by the life, death, and resurrection of the faithful one, Jesus. And because Jesus was always faithful, death couldn't hold him. And God raised him up to his right hand where he now reigns over all and is one day coming again to make all things right and new one day and forever. That's the story of Bible. That's the story of Esther. That what we couldn't do, we long for a king to do to come and to make it right, to rule in righteousness forever. And the Bible is that story. It's the history of God accomplishing his saving purposes for the glory of his name, and even our sin can't thwart him. And so, friend, may you find your hope in Jesus this Christmas and begin to taste and see God's redemptive grace. And brothers and sisters, Esther 2 ends with a feast the king throws for his new bride. But only after she did all that she could do at the expense of herself, the expense of her identity as God's people, in the face of his exploitative, abusive power, to win his favor. And at the end of the Bible, though, we're told of another feast, one in which the king is also very pleased with his bride but not because she did all she could do to make herself pleasing and beautiful, but because the king came to serve his bride and beautify her by using his power to lay down his life for his bride that could never win his favor or approval. In fact, all she could do was further distance herself from him and prove her unworthiness of his love. But God, simply because of the great love with which he loved his people, came from heaven to seek her, to seek his people, to die for them, to raise them to new life, to clothe them in his beautiful righteousness and dignity, and lead them to the wedding feast that will never end. And so, brothers and sisters, as we turn to this feast in a moment, this foretaste of that table that's yet to come, if you're convicted of sin, don't stay away from the king and don't come saying, I'll try harder next time, I'll do better. But come to him, the one who was always faithful, who willingly invites the unfaithful to come to him to give his faithfulness to you. And his grace redeems even the most horrific things you can't imagine it can redeem. Don't stay away from this king. 
come to him and find that grace in the bread and the cup. And brothers and sisters, don't also come presuming. Don't, don't come thinking you can do it, and neither come presuming upon his redemptive grace. Come knowing you have no right to have a place at our king's table, but then also come with joy, knowing that you have every right to sit at his table because King Jesus loved you and gave himself for you and, and ran to you to save you, to clothe you in his righteousness and to bring you home. Let's pray. Father, we, we come knowing how far we often fall short. We come knowing that even when we're not aware of our unrighteousness, you're aware of the countless ways we're not even aware of, of how we're righteous. And that how we often, in those moments, attempt to be righteous in ourselves and to find our righteousness in, in our doing. And so we ask that you would come in these moments and convict and to confront of our sin, but that that would then turn into a leading to find our confidence in, in Jesus alone. And that as we turn to Jesus, you would conform us more into the image of our faithful King, and that we would have the joy of knowing that what we taste here is not just juice and bread, but love and mercy and grace and acceptance and a certainty that you are coming again and when you do, we will be with you one day forever. Never to be sent away from your presence, never to be banished again, never to leave your presence, but to live in your love forever and ever for the glory of your name. And so come meet us now in these moments as we reflect on our King who was born to die so that those who were unworthy might be made worthy, might be made beautiful in spite of what we could not do, all to the glory of your grace, we pray. Amen.